Welcome to From the Back Tees, a podcast where we tee it up from the back every week. This is Tucker Booth back here with my Rappers Don't Golf podcast for FromTheBackTees.com. I don't know what it is, but I keep getting all of these amazing golf legends falling in my lap like I'm some kind of expert or something. Ron Reed is the retired director of Western Regional Affairs for the United States Golf Association and served on there for 32 years. He also served on the Northern California Golf Association for 10 years as well. He's worked more than 100 national golf championships and was the official starter at the U.S. Open for over 25 years. You surely know him as the guy that sent them all on their way when they got that first tee up and going at the U.S. Open. He's also been instrumental in many other land deals and Pebble Beach related stuff that has definitely made the tour much more relevant in recent years. It is my pleasure to welcome Ron Reed to the podcast. Ron, how you doing, sir? Wow, after that intro, uh, how could I be anything but sensational? Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I guess let's ask you right away. Is there anything else you would like to add to that resume? Obviously, I'm just giving a paraphrase. Give us a little more detail about kind of what you think your legacy is in the world of golf, Ron. What my legacy, my legacy, uh, what, I, what I enjoy uh, greatly were the, the people that I was privileged to bring into the organizations, especially volunteers. And one of them, I'll be quickly, Paul Caruso, Jr. of Helena, Montana. He drove all the way across the United States of America to Shinnecock Hills to volunteer at Shine Shoes at Shinnecock Hills. And you know what he did later? He asked me, what else can I do for the game of golf? And I, I, I put him on a committee of USGA, and he rose to be vice president of the USGA. And there were countless examples of those volunteers that really, to me, uh, have been the foundation of the game. Wow. So you definitely, I'd say, when I'm reading up on you, strike me as kind of a mover and a shaker or an organizer. That's probably a better term than mover and shaker. You seem like someone that from the very beginning when you got into the golf world, and I believe that it was in the late 60s after you got out of the Army, have kind of consistently organized groups, uh, whether it be club championships, golf tournaments, even national championships. You've been right in the mix kind of organizing all this stuff. Kind of take us back to the beginning, Ron, and kind of tell me how you went from being someone in the Army to someone that got to have these type of opportunities. I beg. I, I, when I was in the Army in Monterey, I, I went to the Northern Cal Golf Association, and I begged them for a job. And uh, a short time after I got out, I was lucky enough to knock on the door and Bob Hanna hired me at NCGA. And uh, I, I, I did it all from, from the very bottom to uh, becoming his assistant with hopes of being the executive director of the Northern Cal Golf Association. Later on, uh, after about 10 years, I had an opportunity to join the USGA. And there was a time when I represented the USGA from Alaska, Hawaii, all the way to Texas. 
so uh, I had a lot of frequent flyer miles, and, and uh, my, I had a family that fortunately was understanding, and and um, I have two wonderful children and a and a wife of fifty years, and you know I've I've been very lucky in that sense. So how did you fall into this wonderful lifestyle you seem to live in Pebble Beach? I guess you were in the Monterey. Uh, Army, so you've gr- grown up in the NorCal area. Are you a, a lifelong native of that area, or how did you manage to fall into such a lovely, gorgeous place to live? Wow, I was a lucky once again. I've had so much good fortune and surrounded by good people, I'm sure. Um, no, I, I tried to grow up outside of Chicago in the suburb of, La- of LaGrange, Illinois. And, uh, you know, quick quick story. I was not a privileged kid by any stretch. My my mom and father divorced early on, and, and my father actually kidnapped me and took me to uh, Southern California at the age of two. And uh, apparently I was very unhappy, as you might imagine, and uh, went back to LaGrange, and I was lucky. My mom was one of eight children, and my grandfather uh, really became my surrogate father, and and uh, along with all of my mom's brothers and sisters, so I was I was surrounded by love. I was a lucky guy, and and uh, in a wonderful family. And later on, I, I went on to uh, Lagrange. I went to LTHS High School, and on to Drake University. And a funny thing happened on my way to becoming an Air Force officer in ROTC. My doctor told me I had a heart. And therefore, I was wasting my time in ROTC. Well, when I graduated from Drake, I got a draft notice, and guess what? I passed the physical. So uh, after basic training, they sent me to Monterey, California, to the language school, where I was part of the staff. And I was very lucky. I looked around Monterey, and, and I said, gee, you know, I'd like to stay here. So I targeted uh, the Northern Cal Golf Association, and finally they opened the door and and uh, I was the assistant director for a number of years. And you managed to fall into Monterey in an era where the land was nowhere near as incredibly expensive as it is now. I know from living down here in the South Bay of Los Angeles, back in the late 60s, you could buy a home in Hermosa Beach for $10,000, $15,000 that's now worth five to $10 million. I mean, was it pretty much that same kind of scenario for you? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, along the way, you know, my organization, NCGA, built Spyglass Hill Golf Course. They built it for the Pebble Beach Company, and, and they had the rights there for 50 years. Those rights went away uh, four years ago in 2016. But along the way, we said, well, since we're going to lose Spyglass, let's do something else. And we, uh, we conceived the idea of building Poppy Hills Golf Course there at Pebble Beach to the point we bought the land for $8,000 an acre. Today, the surrounding property is going for, uh, uh, you could add a number of zeros behind that. So, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've seen the escalation in values. Yeah, I actually was just up in your neck of the woods with some family around Thanksgiving and just breathtakingly gorgeous everywhere you look in Monterey and obviously down at the beach by Pebble. So, okay, let's go a little bit forward from Army to getting hired in that area doing golf. How did you get into hosting these tournaments, which kind of has become your 
main feature when people bring your name up. They always say, that guy that was the host, the starter. What kind of got you into organizing tournaments, and how did you become kind of known as the host with the most at, at these tournaments? <laughs> Again, you're kind. Um, along the way, um, I had the opportunity to start for, I believe, two years during the old Crosby tournament here at Pebble Beach, the Crosby National Pro-Am. So, you know, I was around celebrities and, and the great players of the game, and I guess the USGA took note of that. And uh, in 1981, when I after I joined the USGA, uh, we needed a starter at the amateur championship at uh, the Olympic Club, and they, they uh, designated me as the starter there. Um, apparently, I, I didn't do a very good job. <laughs> it, was, it was five years before they asked me again, and that was 1986 when, uh, quite surprisingly, uh, I was tapped and said, uh, you're the starter at the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills, and I kept that job uh, until 2010. So I've, I've read some stuff about this first Shinnecock gig that you did, or I, I'm, I guess it was your second, but the, the, the kind of the start of your reign of being the starter for 25 years or so. And I guess it was not the most uh, smooth of, of introductions to Shinnecock as well. Any fun stories from kind of getting your sea legs doing that at Shinnecock? Well, you know, the, the, the first day, my first day of ever doing it was perhaps the worst day maybe in the history of the U.S. Open. And I went out there. I didn't have a rain suit. I had uh, no clipboard. All I had was a couple of sheets of paper with starting times. I had no one. Well, my umbrella inverted, and I ended up throwing it away. So I stood out there all day long like a ground rat and announced the names. Um, fortunately, the weather got better. And um, I, one thing I'll always remember on day two, and I've written about it in, in the book, uh, the book is starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. And uh, on the second day, uh, there were to be three U.S. Open champions, Fuzzy Zeller, Hubert Green, and I've now gone blank on the third. But the point is that uh, Hubert and Fuzzy showed up early for their starting time. And this is my second day of ever doing this. And all of a sudden, I heard laughter. And... I looked up to find each of them with one of the starting tees marching forward to what we then called the ladies' tees at Shinnecock Hills. They had the tee markers, and they walked up, and they put them in the ground. They said, you've set it up too tough. We're, we're playing from here. By the way, the third was Jerry Pate, who had won the USO. But uh, so I immediately, you know, I decided to have fun with it, and I yelled, security! And, and he just laughing, and it was...
So obviously you got better as you went along. How did you find yourself and kind of find a sense of this being a niche for you? Were there any massive turning points at any point early on or otherwise where you really felt like this is what I'm good at doing and this is kind of my niche in pro golf? Because obviously it's what you're known for most notably whenever I bring your name up. You know, what, what was it that kind of gave you that sense that this is where you belonged? I never had that sense, to be honest. I, I would go to the U.S. Open every year. I would look at the assignment sheet, and there was my name at the top as the starter, and I kind of just shook my head. And, you know, it was a, a dream come true, a dream I never had, by the way. But there was my name. Um, you know, I was the center of the circus, so to speak. And, and, and I always approached it that way. I knew that someday, you know, I wouldn't be doing it. But... Uh, you know, it was just a great honor, and I was so lucky to get to know the greatest players of our time, all of them, up close and personal, and that's why I wrote about it in starting the U.S. Open. Well, I know you've got a million stories about all of these great golfers that we know and revere, so maybe let's just do a name association portion here where I fire names at you and you give me your reflections, anecdotes, otherwise about them. Okay, we'll go ahead and start. Let's do Jack Nicholas. Well, I could, uh, I could go on forever. I, I write, write about the soft side of Jack that a lot of people didn't see. Um, I, uh, I, I showed no temerity when I, <laughs> I asked him once, well, why should you know your social security number? Have you ever had a job? <laughs> well, it, it took a while for him to laugh, but when he did, uh, we had a good laugh. And another time I said to him uh, at, at uh, Hazeltine, I said, Jack, that's the worst drive I've ever seen. And he looked at me like, you know, how can you say that to me? <laughs> and uh, I tell the, the complete story in the book. By the way, when I uh, it took to refresh my memory on how bad the shot was, I got a hold of Jerry Pate, who played with him, with Andy Norris. And Jerry said, not only was it the worst drive I've ever seen, he said, I said to Andy, if he makes par from here, I'm walking in. <laughs> uh, it turned out Jack uh, had a 15-foot putt that he left just short uh, for a par. And guess, by the way, who the medalist was that day? Jack Nicholas. Got 71, and the other boys were higher. So, uh, you know, that was the greatness of Jack Nicklaus. Um, I started him in his last U.S. Open when he took the place of Payne Stewart. And I tell the story in the book, but all I can tell you is that uh, when I introduced him, um, he, he took center stage and he said something that anyone that was there will never forget. And I, I can add there wasn't a dry eye in the area, in the grandstand, or, and he grabbed the towel and dried his eyes and uh, smashed it down the first fairway. So um, that was Jack's last U.S. Open. Um, you know, and he, he's so special. And, you know, he's having his 80th birthday next week, and uh, uh, I look forward to dropping him a note. I guess you were saying you may even uh, 
I hope I'm not spoiling anything, but you may even give him a proper recorded introduction for his birthday. That sounds like an amazing gift for a guy that's got everything else he probably ever could have wanted. <laughs> I don't know what else he needs. Uh, maybe I'll write him a check for his children's hospital causes, too. But uh, I just have the greatest respect for both Barbara and Jack. And, you know, we can argue about who the greatest golfer ever was. But when you look at the whole life... Um, you know, who's, who's been better than that family, the Nicholas family? Agreed. So, okay, we'll keep moving with some other golf names. How about Arnold Palmer, the king? Any great Arnold Palmer reflections? God, how long have you got? I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I'll start with the last. I started him in his last U.S. Open. And uh, on day one, he was almost late to the tee at Oakmont, which is nearby Latrobe, where he grew up. Can you imagine if if little old Ron Reed had said, Arnold, add two shots to your score because you were late? Well, I, I should add, there were two trees nearby. They're gone now. But I can remember thinking, you know, if I penalize Arnold Palmer, I wonder which tree I might be hanging from. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, that notion went through my head. And then the next, the next day was his last round, and he showed up early. And uh, I've, I'll, I'll save the story for the book, but for some crazy reason, I decided to lecture Arnold Palmer on lateness. And he was his response is just classic Arnold Palmer. And, you know, there's nobody like him. Uh, I started him once. Uh, we all probably remember when he drove the green at Cherry Hills in the, I believe, 19... I think it was 1960. 60 at Cherry Hills. Well, the next time he came back, I believe it was 93 for the U.S. Senior Open, and he came to the tee early, and I couldn't figure out why he was 10 minutes early. Well, the reason he was there, I figured later, was he wanted to see if anybody could get close to the first green. And Arnold being Arnold, he knew that there were a lot of people there to see Arnold Palmer drive the first green. And the wind was a bit in his face, but when he got on the tee, guess what he tried to do? Pull driver? He was Arnold Palmer, and he was going for the green. And he came up short, but, uh, you know, there was only one Arnold Palmer, and it was always go for it, and just an amazing guy. Uh, I could go on and on. The first time I started him was at the Senior Open in Portland, 1982. And I the the pairing sheet read Ligonier, Pennsylvania. That's where he lived at the time, Ligonier, near Latrobe. And in my nervousness, you know, he was represented or he represented Lanier, a copy machine company that had a nice tent and he would go and entertain customers when he wasn't playing. And so in my nervousness, what came out of my mouth? Arnold Palmer from Lanier, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and he stopped, and he walked over, and he, he, he didn't announce it to the crowd. He just said it to me and to Bill Campbell, the referee. He said, I hope you got paid very well to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the grace of, of Arnold Palmer. He was uh, nobody like him. Uh, may never be, but uh, what an example he set for so many others. 
Well, that sounds wonderful. Let's do a few more here. How about Tom Watson? I imagine you got some good Tom Watson stories. Well, well, if you saw the Fox uh, U.S. Open broadcast, they 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 kindly ran one where they came to my house and I told the story about the uh, the flag from 1982, where he we remember where he pitched in at Pebble Beach to win the U.S. Open later. And uh, I had the flag. For 22 years, I had the flag. And I told Fox the story of, um, uh, to make a long story short, Sunday morning, I, my plan was to keep the flag, have, it, have Tom sign it, and I would keep it. And, but the story was that Tom Watson was playing in his last U.S. Open, and his caddy, was Bruce Edwards, was, uh, was very ill with ALS, and he was struggling and he wasn't going to make it. So that early that morning, I decided, why don't I give the flag to Bruce? And But I could never find Tom to clear it with him. So make a long story short, when they Bruce coming up the hill with his heavy bag on his shoulder, and he was not in good shape. And when he walked up, I, I said, Bruce, uh, I want you to have this. He says, what's that? I said, that's the flag from 22 years ago. And he, all of a sudden, he started to cry. And I did, too. And there were two grown men on the first tee of the U.S. Open, you know, shedding tear. And all of a sudden, Tom appeared, and he was trying to sort out what what just happened here. And I looked at Tom. I said, you know, I tried to find you this morning, but I gave Bruce the flag. Did I do the right thing? And he said, you did the right thing. So... I felt better, and um, off Tom Watson went in his last U.S. Open there at Olympia Fields. So, uh, and, I, and then later I found out, guess who got the flag again? At an auction for ALS, Tom Watson got the flag. He bought the flag, and it, now it sits at the Kansas City Country Club. And uh, I couldn't be happier. That's wonderful. So my buddy Jerry Liu that is at From the Back Tees, who's a caddy at Bandon Dunes, by the way, he says, I got to ask you about Lee Trevino, who I guess he's particularly enamored with. Any great Lee Trevino stories? You know, I, I was around Lee a fair amount. Um, of course, the, <laughs> he'd always look at guys like me in a, in a tie and a jacket on a hot day, and he'd say, you know, when I, when I retire, I'm going to buy one of those blue jackets and I'm going to get a can and I'm going to sprinkle it on my coat like dandruff <laughs> so that I can look like a USDA official. Um, I, I had great respect. Um, my best memory of Lee was when he was an announcer and I was at the Hawaiian Open and the Hawaiians, they love their golf. And But guess who they gravitated to to watch more than any other player on the golf course? Lee Trevino, when he was hitting balls on, on the range. And he could, he could fade a sand wedge. He could hook a sand wedge. Um, you know, we can argue about who the greatest ever was, but when it came to shot making, let me tell you, Lee Trevino was, there was nobody better than Lee Trevino. And he could compete today. There's no question about it. But, uh, you know, he, 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 he jabbered a lot. And I always thought it was, um, Perhaps out of nervousness, but um, one of the one of the greatest ever to play the game without any question. 
Most definitely. All right, we'll go a little more modern with you now, Ron. Of course, the great Eldrick Tiger Woods. Any great Tiger stories? Well, I write about Tiger. You know, I, I was around him from about age 14 or 15. He played at Lake Merced in the U.S. Junior, and he went up against um, it, one of his close friends today, Nota Begay, the third. And uh, they played and they become pals. And about five minutes after the match was over, Tiger had won. They were in the clubhouse, and they like they looked like two kids, perhaps from China, playing ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were ten feet from the table, batting that ball back and forth. So uh, they they were longtime pals. I I write about Tiger. Um, the chapter is called. Uh, this tiger was never a kitten, and we all know that he had an unusual uh, boyhood and and uh, later on adult life. And uh, I saw I saw the competitiveness of Tiger Woods when he was seventeen. He was trying to qualify for the U.S. Open down at Valencia, not too far from you. Yeah, I had a girlfriend from there. Uh, I'm aware over by uh, Six Flags. <laughs> well. He, uh, on about the uh, 33rd hole of the day, he flew the green, he missed club, and he put the ball in the cart, the golf cart of of the tournament chairman. And uh, this 17-year-old boy was not happy, and neither was Eldrick Woods, his dad. And they were upset about the, where the cart was located. They should have been mad about the club selection. But anyway, um, I saw the competitiveness competitiveness of that young man and it got worse because his one of his rivals Ted O uh, won the spot and played in the 93 US Open there at Baltusrol and uh, you could just tell right at that moment that that there was one young man who someday would uh, would possibly be the best player ever in the game so you've been privy to watching Tiger win all of his U.S. Opens, right? I mean, you, you were starting every U.S. Open that he's ever won in, in his career. Uh, yeah. Maybe give us a little bit of, of uh, perspective between 2000 Pebble Beach and 2008 at Torrey Pines. Any memories from that span? Well, Pebble, uh, of course, the great memory there is in the third round when he... he <laughs> <laughs> he yanked his drive well into the Pacific Ocean and he turned to Steve Williams his caddy and he said give me another ball and, a, and, and I'm going to hit another drive and Steve said uh, why did you hit an iron on the part 5 18th hole Tiger says give me another driver and I'm going to use the driver and another ball well they argued for a while and finally Tiger smashed his drive down the middle of the fairway what he didn't know at the time was, and Steve knew it, that was his last golf ball. <laughs> so if he hit it in the ocean, uh, who knows what would have happened. He probably uh, would have been disqualified for delay of the game. But he, he ends up winning by, what, 12 or 15 shots um, over Jose Maria, excuse me, uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez, I believe, and perhaps Ernie Els. But... Um, between now and 08, of course, um, you know, he had some physical issues. And I remember 
there he was on the first tee uh, playing with Phil Mickelson and Adam Scott at Torrey Pines. And he, you know, right from the start, you could tell something wasn't quite right. That, um, you know, he was having a, a movement issue. And he got up on the tee and he yanked the ball way, way, way left. And um, I believe he double bogeyed the first hole. And then, you know, every day I noticed this limp. And, uh, you know, he, he was amazing. And then what I remember very well is I, I was with um, Rocco Mediate uh, behind the grandstand on the 72nd hole thinking I'm going to be leading Rocco to the ceremony to get the trophy. And this tremendous roar went up like I've never heard before. And, of course, Tiger made, what, a 12-foot putt that went here, there, and everywhere and fell into the hole. And, uh, uh, you know, he's the most competitive player ever to play the game in my book. But uh, we can argue about whether he's the best. Yeah, I guess being an, being uh, an elder statesman here, I always have to ask that question, and you just put it out there to, to tee it up. So... Jack or Tiger, who are you taking as the greatest of all time, or is this an answer that's not completely finished being answered yet? Well, I, you know, I spoke to a bunch of kids in Spokane a few years ago, and I, um, I reflect on it now. I said that uh, we'll find out how good Tiger is after he's had five children and, uh, you know, raised those kids to be good adults. And, and won all those championships. And, you know, I kind of looked at the whole package. Uh, and, um, and by the way, I said, you know, after he wins, I projected that he would win 21 majors, given the rate that he was going. And I said, when he does, he will become the richest man in the world. And Bill Gates will then be his caddy. <laughs> I, was, I was, of course, kidding, but... Um, if I had to pick between the two uh, in a tight call, I picked Jack. I hear you. Let's do a few more of these player reflections before we move on. Let's do Phil Mickelson. You mentioned him. Any great lefty stories? Oh, uh, the, the lefty. Um, yeah, I, I, it is first U.S. Open at Medina. Now, Tucker, I know you're a great player. Oh, you now you're being too kind, sir. <laughs> I, I mean, when I play, um, I try to hit the middle of every fairway. I don't think about hitting the left side, right side, whatever. Phil showed up as an amateur in 1990, and he took the whole sheet, the whole location sheet, and he looked at it the first day. And the first hole at Medina was a bit of a dog leg left. And he sized, he realized where the hole was, and he took out a forward and he cut it. He stated it to the... He's left-handed, so he faded it to the left side of the fairway. The next day, he looked at the whole sheet, and he decided, I'm going to hit a driver. And he hooked that driver. And the next day was another shot. And the fourth day was another shot. And I, it was the, that moment in time when I realized we mortals are not playing the same game as, as the greatest in the game. Now, of course, he was an amateur then, but he was an established player having won the U.S. Amateur. But, uh, uh, you know, I realized at that moment, I said, here's, here's, a, here's a young man that you better follow. And what is he now, 49? Yeah, that's what I read. He's almost going to be 50 this season. Uh, well, 
time in Brown. Uh, he, yeah, you know, I, I write about a couple of things in the book, um, not so much about his ability, but um, one of them uh, at Shinnecock Hills, he was standing there and I introduced him to Prince Andrew, um, uh, who, of course, is in the news today. Prince Andrew was the a special uh, uh, observer referee at the time, and and uh, the the presence of royalty, British royalty, there uh, shocked Phil Mickelson. Um, it, but uh, another memory was um, when he played with Payne Stewart in '99, and Payne showed up, and he um, Phil was standing there when Payne said to me. Uh, got any scissors and you know i've had a lot of funny requests like matches or have you got more teas or you know that sort of thing and but never scissors and chill kind of looked funny and he was trying to figure out as i was what the devil uh, he wanted Dean stewart wanted and uh, he wanted him to cut the sleeves off uh, off his uh, nice jacket that he was wearing <laughs> as did I, trying to figure out. I thought he was asking for scissors because he thought maybe I could trim his hair or something, but no, I was to cut the sleeves off. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, he was, Bill was there when uh, Payne made that nice putt um, to win the U.S. Open, and, and they had a wonderful celebration there in the green. Great sportsman, no question about it. One of the greatest sportsmen that's ever played. I was going to mention Payne, and you kind of led me right to him. Any other wonderful Payne memories? I, I spoke recently with Kevin Robbins, who just wrote this book, The Last Stand of Payne Stewart, and sounds like that final U.S. Open is one of the most magical ever in U.S. Open history when Payne beat Phil. Any other great Payne stories? Oh, you know, I got to know Payne quite well, and I, and I, I, I love Payne Stewart. Um, there was a... A time when I I wasn't happy with him when the, uh, he when he won the PGA Championship and he he did some things uh, he didn't lack confidence never lacked confidence and he was playing with Mike Reed and uh, something happened there that I just didn't didn't agree with but I always respected him and I got to know him very, pretty well and um, two things I'll share when I after he cut the sleeves off and. Um, there I was on the first tee, and Mark Rolfing, representing NBC, gave me the go sign, you know, begin your introduction. And all of a sudden, from the church across the way, um, it started the chimes of amazing grace. And I just said to myself, I'm just, I'm going to ignore NBC, and I'm just going to pause until amazing grace has ended. And so we paused, and and then he began play. And, of course, he, he won that open. And, and as he, he came in afterward, after making that nice putt, he, uh, he came up and he looked and he said, champagne for the press room. He, he had a request of me. And I, I looked at him. I said, there are 3,000 people there. He said, champagne for the press room. He wanted to be a Tony Lima-like. So I went to the GM, and they couldn't provide enough champagne at that time so I wasn't able to fulfill his request but uh, I knew Payne quite well we we had a lot of fun there was a moment at Kapalua uh, the tournament that just ended um, back when Mark Rolfing uh, created this thing the Kapalua International 
we uh, we we had a good time one night, and along with Davis Love the Third, and I remember uh, a lot of the players. We had a we had a really good time. Payne was a great guy. Seems like that's all I ever hear about Payne. Great guy, life of the party, little bit of an iconoclast, but the the best kind, the kind, the lovable iconoclast. Sounds like he made a lasting impression on golf that'll be remembered forever. Yeah, he did, and uh, I was at Golf House, Far Hills, New Jersey. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments you, you never forget. It's like John Kennedy or, you know, something unbelievable. Um, and when when we were told the plane was uh, missing and flying over South Dakota, it just broke your heart. And, um, you know, I in fact, um, when he won the U.S. Open in 91 at Hazeltine, Again, my job was to kind of get the family together and get them to the ceremony. And I remember I got the kids ice cream on the on about the seventy or on the playoff during the playoff. Tracy and the two kids, and I got them ice cream, and I was able to tell them that their daddy had just won the U.S. Open, and that that was a special moment. And uh, it was always emotional, as you might imagine, especially for for the family. Tracy, uh, you know, very nice lady. Wow. It sounds like you've really gotten to be right there behind the ropes for so many of these amazing moments. Let's do one more, and I'm going to include uh, the Chambers Bay story within this. Now, I, I don't know if you were actually the starter for the Chambers Bay U.S. Open. I believe you had already stopped doing that by that point. But you were instrumental in helping them scout the land for Chambers Bay where the U.S. Open was held in 2016, I believe. And also, you were someone that that is credited as being someone who put put a lot of them together with this land deal. Give us a little bit of that story about how you were able to help um, negotiate this with these folks and and a little bit about your recollections of Jordan Spieth and that U.S. Open. Well, uh, to begin, the story really begins in 1982 with the U.S. Senior Open that I talked about Arnold Palmer. And I saw the, the energy and the love of the game in the Pacific Northwest, in Portland and, and later in Seattle. And I realized that that area, the Pacific Northwest, had never had a U.S. Open. So in 1982, I kind of set out, and I had no marching orders, and I began to look at golf courses. And along the way, uh, Peter Jacobson uh, directed me to, of course, he designed the Oregon Golf Club. And then I, long story short, I ended up in Bandon. I was among the first roaming the sand dunes with David McClay Kidd, the architect. And uh, then I ended up in uh, a place called Newcastle that uh, Red Couples had directed me. It's kind of southeast of Seattle. I was looking. I was looking for the right golf course to advance to uh, the USGA. And uh, I was at a Christmas party uh, with the architect Robert Trent Jones Jr. And he said, gee, you got to see this property. I'm designing a golf course south of Tacoma. And so a short time thereafter, I, there I was on the rim of this sand dunes with uh, John Landberg, John, amazing guy. He was the executive of the county there in uh, south of Seattle, Pierce County. And so it was John and Bob 
Jones and myself, and we're standing there, and I I looked at this big sand dunes, and I said, we built it day one to hold the U.S. Open. It was just clear to me. Yeah, and, uh, and, you know, knowing Bob's reputation and also knowing knowing what it would mean to Robert Trent Jones Jr. to follow in the footsteps of his dad who had numerous U.S. Open golf courses. And his brother, Reese, who was known as the, the Open Doctor. And to have that recognition, I knew that Robert Trent Jones would, would build nothing but a sensational golf course. And um, I don't know if the place has a bigger fan than yours truly. Um, you know, it has everything. It's a tremendous challenge. It's fun. You play the right tees, and you and I can go have a wonderful time. It's a sensational setting that compares to any, any in the world, Pebble Beach included. Um, it's it's just a great place, and and I knew I knew at the time that and you know this would be the first in the Pacific Northwest in 115 years that they finally have the U.S. Open, and it was enormously successful. Yes, there were some players that complained, but uh, you brought up Jordan Spieth and. Uh, let's see. Number one was Jordan, and number two was Dustin Johnson. So I, I think that says a lot. Um, a, a remembrance I have of, of Jordan, I didn't know Jordan very well. But on Saturday, I was standing on the practice range with a, a great volunteer who never got the recognition, pardon the digression, Bob Hollister, who did so much for is a volunteer for golf there. And we were standing there. And one player, one player was practicing at late that Saturday, and that was Jordan Steve. And Jordan was marching toward us, headed to a courtesy truck or a bus. And he stopped, and uh, we chatted for a minute, and he recognized me, and, and um, he said, let's get a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> And then he realized that uh, his caddy was down there, Michael Greller. And he says, no, Michael, you take this. I mean, that's just the kind of a nice young man he is. You know, let's get a picture. So there he was, the only player hitting balls that Saturday afternoon. And he took the time. And um, off he went. And he got on his bus. And the next day, he won the U.S. Open. By the way, I ran into him on uh, in darkness one Sunday at Pebble Beach had his clubs on the shoulder there I was with my dog Katrina and all of a sudden I looked up and there he was <laughs> and he was going out to play with a couple of buddies and um, so we, we got another picture with my dog Katrina and with Jordan Speed so uh, there's a there's a fine young man and a great representative of the game of golf yeah, and we're all pulling for Jordan to make a nice resurgence here in the new year and maybe cap off that Grand Slam as well. So you, you mentioned your dog, Katrina. I see on Twitter, Ron, you are a consistent presence on there, and just about every day I see you walking on the Pebble Beach links with Katrina, your, your dog. I read that you walk anywhere from six to seven miles per morning with her, and you usually end up at the pro shop at Pebble Beach at the club. Tell us about this tradition, this ritual, and, and how it got started. Well, uh, 
we moved from Pebble Beach. We moved to Carmel Valley. So I would drive in and I'd, I'd park in Carmel and we'd go down and I'd run. I was jogging a lot and I'd run the beach and she'd run with me and we had our little path up the night fairway and we'd run to the lodge at Pebble Beach and, and, uh, we'd stop by the maintenance area because I, you know, I know all the maintenance guys and Chris Delhammer, the superintendent and great guys, wonderful guys. So anyway, and by the way, one day she and I ran into Arnold Palmer, Evan Coffey, and I, you know, I was so shocked. He was there for Jim Nance's uh, wedding. And um, anyway, we sat down and had coffee, and your sweet Katrina worked the room. She went around, and guess where she sat? Right by the king? At the king's feet. She Somehow she knew. <laughs> and uh, she's become legendary, and, you know, you run into a lot of people there at the Lodge at Pebble Beach, and uh, she's uh, she's a celebrity. She knows Clint Eastwood and, and Alice Cooper and Jerry West and Jerry Rice and very Zito, and I could go on and on, but no, she's a celebrity, more so than I am. <laughs> so you mentioned Clint Eastwood, <clears throat> and I know from talking with a couple different folks, including my buddy Ron Mintz, who's a friend of yours, Clint Eastwood is a neighbor of yours, and uh, allegedly a friend, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but how did that relationship get started, and uh, you know, give us some insight into, into Clint. You know, obviously this guy's still going strong in his 80s, cranking out Academy Award nominatable material. How did that relationship get started? You know, I, I, we're, not, we're not intimate friends. Uh, you know, we've chatted and had a, had a glass of wine and that sort of thing. Um, a classic is the day I'm up at Tehama, which is a club he owns, and, and Katrina's on the deck, and I'm not sure she should be there at this club. And it starts to rain, and Clint makes a beeline for the door to see the dog. And I thought, I'd better go after him because, you know, maybe the dog shouldn't be here. Well, I got there, and now there's a love affair. And there's a picture in the book of Clint and Katrina. And and she's kissing him, and, and I said to him, you know, do you like animals? He says, oh, I miss Big Red. He had an Irish setter that he loved. And then he says, uh, he said, my girlfriend has three horses, three dogs, and I have a turtle. Clint Eastwood has a turtle. <laughs> so uh, we're, not, we're not intimate friends, um, you know. It, I, we're not neighbors either. He lives high on a hill, a uh, beautiful home that he built. Um, I'm down in the valley, uh, but uh, he's, he's a wonderful guy. And, uh, he's, he's done so much for this community, and obviously he's still cranking those movies out. So, uh, you know, it's it, it, we're, we're lucky to have people like him in our community. Yeah, you definitely have a huge pool of celebrities all around that Monterey Bay. Any other folks that you run into on a consistent basis that, that you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about some of your experiences with? Oh, listen, uh, you know, I... I as I said earlier, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I, I, I treasure, uh, I tell in the book about uh, Hugh Ferguson. Hugh Ferguson came to me and on the first day at Medina, and he says, Mr. Reed, I want to meet the starter of the U.S. Open. And Hugh Ferguson was just an ordinary guy who loved the game. And those are my friends. And I write about you in the last chapter of the book about friendship and what, what golf does for friendship. And... Uh, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I've been lucky to run into a lot of people, but, uh, you know, we're all the same. We're golfers. 
and and uh, those people mean everything to me. And uh, can, can I can I uh, talk about one one uh, one aspect of the book? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, my perhaps the favorite part of my book, starting U.S. Open, is about the dreamers. You know, every year, like nine thousand of them try to qualify, and and there's one in particular, several. Andy Dillard. Andy Dillard, um, his story is in the book, but he starts, he goes from nobody to somebody when he birdies the first six holes of the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. And the story is better than that, but um, the dreamers, and one of the dreamers was somebody that I thought about at every U.S. Open after I heard about him. His name was Henry J. Brown. And Henry J. Brown entered the U.S. Open from prison. No lie. He was in prison. The U.S. Open was his dream. And when he got out of prison, make a long story short, you know where he lived? Um, After he lived, his postmark was a junkyard in Indianapolis, Indiana. Wow. And, I I mean, I think the guy's a book. And I tell the story in, in in the book. And, but before every U.S. Open, before every single one after I heard about Henry J. Brown, I paused for a minute and I thought about him and the Dreamers and what the U.S. Open is and what it, in my opinion, should always be open to anybody. Anybody. And, uh, you know, we all celebrate the, some of the people we taught you and I talked about, but, you know, the 9,000 of them every year, that's their dream. And uh, I don't think you can ever lose sight of that. It is the U.S. Open. Well, for sure, and that's a phenomenal story. I do think there's a story about Henry J. Brown. That sounds like like something I'd like to look into deeper. So you've talked quite a bit about your book, Starting the U.S. Open, and I was going to get there, but the quote that I've pulled up is from CBS Sports anchor Jim Nance, who everybody knows. Hello, friends. He says, few have experienced the cauldron uh, every golfer experiences on the first tee of the U.S. Open. My friend Ron Reed had a front row seat there for 23 years to witness the hardest shot in golf, the first one. He is, in fact, the man who was starting the U.S. Open. So tell us about how this book came about. Tell us where we can go get it. Give us a little more insight into the book starting the U.S. Open. Well, I mean, I won freshman English, so <laughs> you write a book. Um, you know, it was, was amazing in itself, but along the way, you know, people kept saying, you know, you need to write about that. And there was a, a publishing agent, uh, the agent of uh, the great John Updike, the writer. And this agent said to me, uh, you know, you need to write a book. And so I took that to heart, considering the source, and... Finally, I, I sat down and I, I really had very few notes. In fact, I think there's only one note that I went back and I looked at my quote that I had written down. This is all off the top of my head. So I wrote this book and it, it has uh, 79 stories. And it ends with a chapter I love. Golf is your passport to friendship. Does that say it all? Yeah, for sure. So... I, I sat down and I, I wrote this book and uh, Barbara and Jack Nicholas 
I was lucky again. They invited me to the Memorial Championship to sign books last uh, May, June. So I, I went there and I, I signed some books and, and sold some books. But, um, so, but it was more others telling me, you need to write that. Well, <laughs> then one day Jim Nance gave me, he gave me the title. I started the U.S. Open and I softened that a little bit to starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. And the um, book's done very well, and, and people like it, and um, I've heard good things. So, um, you know, it's on Amazon, and I have a website, Ron Reed, like read a book, Ron Reed, R-E-A-C.com. <laughs> and I sign the book as though you entered the U.S. Open, and people react well to that. In fact, I have people who have videoed my introduction that uh, that I write in the book, so it's been well received, and and I'm pleased about that. And I'm already thinking about another book, so um, maybe maybe my next one will be more a tell-all than a, a funny thing. Uh, people, you know, the comments are sensational, and they laugh. And we, you and I, haven't talked a lot about my mistakes, but boy, I write about them. I made a lot of mistakes along the way, and um, I learned from Peter Alice, the great. BBC announcer to laugh at myself, um, and that came after uh, I, I introduced Joe Carr, and here's what I said from Dublin, England. <laughs> and Peter Ellis was next to speak, and he's not shy. He said, "Wars have started over less." <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no, I learned to laugh at myself, but uh, you know. I, if I could, I'd love to introduce you. Can I do that? Yes, I was going to say, you had dangled this at the beginning of our phone call that you wanted to introduce me. I would be honored. Please, please, Ron. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the final pairing of the United States Open Championship. Please welcome from Redondo Beach, California, Tucker Booth. Play away, please. That's going to be my new ringtone. <laughs> Every time somebody calls me, that's going to play. I'm telling you, Ron. Hey, I've enjoyed it greatly. Yeah, no, this has been wonderful. So I guess final question for you. I ask every guest this question now. This was proposed to me by Michael J. Whalen, who was one of the architects of the Golf Channel. He said, when I hear an interview, the question I always want them to ask that they rarely ever ask is, what is your greatest regret whether it be professionally or otherwise. And then I'll, I'll do the flip side question for you right away. What is your greatest aspiration still or your greatest wish? What do you still want to accomplish or what would you most like to fulfill in your life? So start with greatest regret and then give us your greatest aspiration. Uh, you know, a regret that I would offer to young people today is don't be afraid to move. Now, I, I got into this thing in, in something that, you know, it was a great passion of mine, the game of golf. And it wasn't playing the game so much as it was in just a love of the game and wanting to to work and preserve the game, the game that we all love. And we haven't talked about equipment and all that stuff. Well, I'm an old-timer. I, I want to see things reeled back. I want to preserve the game the way the game has always been played in, a, in an honorable way. I would say to young people, don't be afraid to move. I passed up a couple of job opportunities. 
one to go to Fire Hills, New Jersey, just to stay at Pebble Beach. And uh, but I would say along the way, you know, I've lived in Des Moines, Iowa, and Chicago, and some some great places, and I'd go back to any one of them. Um, I've always enjoyed where I live. I was just lucky here in the Monterey Peninsula. Um, your second question was a good one. Repeat it, please. <laughs> I'd say, what are your greatest aspirations still? What would you most like to fulfill or accomplish in your life that you haven't already? I would say right now, um, I wanted this book. I, 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 I never planned to get rich on this book, but, um, you know, I've had so many people that have been kind to me, and we talked about Jim Nance and Barbara and Jack Nicholas. I would hope that this book is successful enough so that I can, you know, Jim Nance, uh, I believe he lost his father to Alzheimer's, and Barbara and Jack Nicholas are huge in Children's Hospital, uh, uh, I believe in Florida. And, and, and the third aspect that I'd like to contribute to through this book, I'd like to establish scholarships um, in the name of my kids. Alicia Reed went to Miami University of Ohio, and Ryan Christian Reed who went to Washington and Lee University in uh, Virginia. And, you know, we all face tough things in our lives. And I would, I would like to establish uh, scholarships to help kids that, you know, maybe haven't been as lucky as my kids or I've been as well. So my aspiration would be to contribute to, uh, to those causes. I hope that answers your question. Uh, It's a wonderful answer. It's a selfless answer, and I really appreciate it. Well, Ron Reed, author of Starting Starting the U.S. Open, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I super-duper appreciate it. Ron, I'm going to be up there covering the AT&T tournament at Pebble Beach coming up soon for From the Back Tees. I would love to shake your hand and get together with you when I'm up there. Hope to run into you sometime soon down the road, sir. Thanks so much. Any final shout-outs you'd like to make? Any final, uh, you know, plugs or people you'd like to give give love to? Please go ahead now. Ron Reed, R-E-A-D dot com. I can sign it. But uh, I'll be disappointed if uh, you have my number. And uh, Dottie Pepper and, and I and Katrina, she loves Katrina. Um, we, we walk Pebble Beach uh, almost every day, and I'd be delighted if if uh, we could do that again and you join us. So uh, put that in your uh, to-do list. That sounds like an honor. I love taking long walks on the beach. I love dogs. Love talking golf stories. That sounds amazing. I definitely, definitely put that down in my day planner, sir. Let's have some fun. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ron Reed. This is Tucker Booth, Rappers No Golf Podcast from thebacktees.com. Be sure to pick up a copy of Starting the U.S. Open with Ron Reed. Thank you so much. Play away, please. Thank you for listening to From the Back Tees. Toward the hole, and it's in with 30. We hope you enjoyed today's show. For more information and updates, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at From the Back Tees. I'm going to enjoy it for the rest of my life. See you next week. Be the ball, man.